support for veterans, but why has it taken so long? America's top-thinking general says, here's what's wrong with leadership. It's almost a mob-like mentality. Are we getting remembrance right and a hundred years of PTSD? Ministers are promising to step up support for veterans of the armed forces, both at home and abroad. The Ministry of Defence has announced a package of measures designed to improve the care of former military personnel, including those struggling with mental health problems. Well, let's talk to former Chief of Defence Staff Lord Richards. Good to speak to you today. Now, we've known for such a long time that some veterans are severely affected mentally by what they experience on the battlefield. Why is it only now the MOD seems to be taking responsibility? Well... I think it's a bit harsh to say they're only now taking responsibility. Uh, although I do know, and obviously I've been at the front of a, of a bit of a protest movement, if you like, to try to get them to focus more on it. I think what's happened is that everyone has started to realise that this is a much bigger problem than they had thought it was. And yes, probably a bit belatedly, um, they are now putting all their energy and interest into it to make sure that we make make amends and get it right for the future. A much bigger problem than everybody thought it was. How big is the problem? Well, that's a very important question because actually, and this is why I and um, six other uh, ex-chiefs of defence wrote a, a letter the other day to the Times, uh, the, the, or the Sunday Times, the, the issue is they don't really know. Um, they know um, from looking at what's happening in America, where it's a massive problem, that at one extreme it can be huge and needs really urgent, um, you know, remedial action, through to what I've experienced in other countries is that it's not necessarily, as long as those that are affected are properly helped, is not necessarily a huge problem. But to be frank, they don't really know. So the, the first requirement, is to understand it better and make sure that we then put in to, uh, it, it, we start applying the remedies that people are feeling their way over a bit, but I now have a much better understanding of as well. It does seem quite surprising that there is this lack of understanding of how bad the problem is. You would have thought that people would be more aware of it sooner and have investigated it sooner. I, I agree with you, um, and I'm not trying to defend it. I think, though, what has happened is it's a growing realisation post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, that we now have another generation of veterans uh, who need uh, really energetic and generous support. Um, and these things, historically, it's clear. And by the way, I'm no expert. I just have huge you know, concern that we look after our people, like anyone in my position should feel, um, that, that we understand it better and put in place the right remedial action. But it, these things, historically, um, are stored away um, and often only manifest themselves as people grow older. So I think, to be fair to the system, they're just beginning to see that phenomenon appear in much greater numbers, and, and, and that would explain to some degree why, although it was being well looked after within the armed forces, by the way, largely, um, it was only when people retired from the armed forces that they begin to you know, feel more isolated and need more coherent support. And, and we're now, in many cases, because people have you know, fought in Iraq, 
um, and Afghanistan in some cases nearly 20 years ago. Most of them have now come out of the armed forces and that now they're needing the help that we didn't need to give them in this way when they were still serving because they had all these support measures uh, around them. So I think that's another explanation for why we're a bit behind the parker. Yes. America is about to celebrate Veterans Day. What are the Americans getting right that we're getting wrong in the treatment of veterans? Well, actually, I think they would tell you that we are probably better than them. And they've got a much bigger problem. There are much bigger armed forces, obviously, so by definition. But one of the interesting things when I was over in America talking to them about this is that, for example, they used to do one-year tours uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, sometimes 18 months. We stuck, in most cases, certainly in combat tours, to six months. And actually, people like me got quite a lot of stick for sticking to six-month tours because the Americans and others said, you know, you're just getting to know the country and you're going again. Uh, not understanding, by the way, that we were fully immersed in what we were doing between tours. But I understood where they were coming from. Ironically, though, the good thing about six-month tours is that it was only six months. And therefore, the very intense immersion in a combat zone um, that they went through has probably created a worse problem for them. Although, again, they're not really certain about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's not a straight... I mean, I am a real amateur on this, but um, it's not straightforward. And the main thing to latch on to is that the MOD uh, has got hold of the issue now and is determinedly doing something about it. Let's just talk briefly about Commonwealth veterans, because as part of this announcement, they're to be offered those living in poverty two meals a day. Uh, what do you make of that kind of announcement? Well, um, this is really what I've been more involved in than the, the, the mental health issues and PTSD. Um, about 7,000 uh, veterans, largely World War II veterans from across the old empire, now the Commonwealth, fought with us and for us um, pre-independence, uh, nation's independence. Um, about 7,000 live in complete poverty. Uh, it's because... Um, their countries were meant to pick up the bill for looking after them as part of the independence negotiations. Uh, for various reasons which we need to go into, that has not happened. Um, and so uh, a, a wonderful charity that I'm the sort of titular head of called the Royal Commonwealth Ex Services League has been providing one meal a day minimum for them uh, across about 48 nations. We were running out of money um, and so uh, I and others went to DFID, uh, Penny Mordant, who's the Secretary of State there, is also a reservist in the Navy. And so she immediately uh, had an empathy with what we were trying to do. And to cut a long story short, uh, today um, the Department of International Development announced through the UK AID system or a UK aid system that we will get um, £11.8 million over the next five years to ensure that these wonderful people uh, go through the last stage of their life with much greater dignity and being properly fed. Lord Richards, this is all about supporting veterans. You yourself have made the transition from military to civilian life. What's it like? Um, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I... Only okay. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, on good days it's great, um, and uh, but I do miss the camaraderie. I'm the, I'm the first to admit it. But by locking into veterans associations and my own regimental veterans and so on, uh, I still get lots of it. And fun enough, in many ways, we've become even firmer friends right across the rank range from my old driver through to my RSM and a, a few you know semi-competent officers in between. So no, I do miss it hugely. Uh, but I'm very happy in sort of retirement. <laughs> Lord Richard, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, as we look towards the centenary of the armistice on Sunday, are we getting remembrance right? And Dan Snow looks back on 100 years of shell shock and PTSD. The now-retired U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal was perhaps best known for getting the sack from President Obama after he criticised him and the vice president in a magazine interview. But his big military reputation came from being commander of Joint Forces Operations and the hunting down of al-Qaeda leaders. He's been described by the former U.S. Defence Secretary Robert Gates as the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I ever met. In his new book, General McChrystal has been examining how leadership works. Here he is speaking on the BBC's Today programme earlier this week. I've done my own personal journey on leadership. I was taught leadership in the military. I had a chance to try to exercise it. Some successes and some failures. I've been studying it in the eight years since I left and recently wrote a book called Leaders, Myth and Reality, which is really went back to first principles. We went back to Plutarch because what we came to the conclusion is we really don't understand leadership at all. We're building all of our decisions on a, a very flimsy foundation. And the conclusion we derived in the book was leadership isn't what we think it is, and it never has been. We have this tendency to look at leadership through mythological lenses. And so we pick great women and great men. We follow them. Then when we're unhappy with them, we get rid of them, and we repeat the same process again. We tend to look at success or failure of an organization and attribute that to a single person's strength or weaknesses. And that's not true at all. It's not borne out by data. And then finally, we have this sense that we are hard-nosed, objective people, and we select leaders based on the results they bring, the bottom line if they're a CEO, victory if they're a politician. And in reality, we follow serial failures all the time. It's a very emotional interconnection between followers and leaders. Well, I'm joined by Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Stathis, you were laughing there. What do you make of what General McChrystal was saying? Well, num- number one, translating leadership uh, on the battlefield uh, to uh, uh, any form of leadership in the civilian world, of course, are two different things. But first of all, um, uh, we'll play poker. I will see g- the General's Plutarch and raise him one Aristotle, a Thucydides, and one Max Weber. Uh, <laughs> a sound leader seeks, the, first of all, the good of the people, not himself, has a sense of uh, foresight or prognosis based on experience and knowledge with uh, a certain dose of um, uh, charismatic uh, uh, leadership. Uh, now, I know where this is going a little bit, or at least I think I do. Uh, Weber had three types of, um, uh, uh, of leader, uh, the rational legal, legal authority, the traditional authority, and uh, charismatic authority. Uh, charisma more about personality and ego rather than empathy or statecraft, uh, 
almost based on a, a, a messianic mm-hmm. uh, promise to do great things. And uh, uh, if we're going to apply that uh, to any particular leaders today, well, uh, it's the charismatic sense that I think we, uh, we, we see in the United States. Mm, Christopher Lee, now I know, I know Michael was saying there, there's a difference, <laughs> that there is a difference between leadership on the battlefield. And, he, didn't, he didn't mention academics, did he? Yeah, and leadership, well, that's, that's a, n- a whole nother story. Uh, and, Can I give you the three leaders that I was taught? And this, is, this, was the, this was the Navy's view of leaderships. You get the strong excitatory, they called it, um, and that means, oh, hell, what that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody help me. You get the sanguine, and the sanguine says, and oh, we can't possibly have the war then. I should be at Lord's for the test match. <laughs> and, and then you get the calm and imperturbable, and he's the one that you actually want, the calm and imperturbable, and the last one the British ever had, for example, was General Waverley mm. uh, in, in, in the Second World War. Well, let's hear more now from General McChrystal. Uh, here he is talking about President Donald Trump. I think he's a uh, pretty traditional leader. He is a populist. He is a, you could say revolutionary, but he doesn't have a revolution in mind. What he does is he fills a need for a frustrated population. They feel like they have been let down by elites for decades. And there's a fair argument to be made for that. And he comes in and says, the elites have failed you. I'm going to offer something different. And so as a consequence, he plays to those frustrations. What's very interesting and should be a cautionary tale is people are willing to discount many of the things he says and does because he fills another emotional need. And the frightening part of that is we've seen it in history before and usually it produces a bad outcome. The reality is we will follow populists, everything from Salem witch trials on where people get a sense that they're following a, it's almost a mob-like mentality and they'll move to something that in the light of day when they're calm they're much less likely to be excited about professor stathis we will follow populist trump has done it he's got another six years left hasn't he oh absolutely uh you know he he is almost the very definition of a charismatic demagogue and um uh, 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 getting back to weber again uh he he has created for uh his base uh you know, almost a messianic figure uh, that is going to uh, take care of all of their problems uh, and others. And um, McChrystal was absolutely right uh, that uh, many American people have uh, this tendency, oh, forget about all of the other things that uh, we would not forgive another leader. But uh, if he can do this, this, and this, uh, then uh, then he's in. The problem is, and McChrystal quoted history, and he, again, I agree completely, we have seen this over and over again, uh, from Alcibiades, um, uh, you know, to Mussolini, to his, to uh, to Hitler, and uh, well, and then uh, to today. Mm, Christopher Lee. And listen, um, there's something else to consider here: is, is that we think of leadership, like the generals and the presidents, etc. Um, what the crystal really is concerned with is the leadership at the at every level, and so leadership starts at the lance corporal level because he is the first authority which others have to follow and test, and that's a test of leadership, it's a test of everything else. Mm. And so when somebody makes a mistake, 
is what do you do with the people who are watching that mistake and um, responsible for that mistake? And that is leadership in a, in, a, in a small sense, which one day, of course, they may have a knapsack in their um, field marshal's knapsack in, uh, or baton in the I'll just knapsack. Put, I'll just put you on the spot, Christopher. Who do you think is the best? Who's the best leader you can think of that you've come across? Uh, that I've come across? Come across or read about? Uh, I'd, God, I don't know. I think in, in, in modern British history, then Churchill was the best leader because he was the figurehead, and it touches on something that, that, that Michael's touched, and also the general does. You don't look for a leader, especially in the United States in the presidency, he doesn't have to be the best leader in the sense that he can say, this is the way we're going, please follow me. He presents something which is says we're o- okay under this guy, whereas the leaders are the second lot down. The leaders are the governors. I think in the United States, for example, the governors mm. are the most important people in the United States because they change things. And so you can take out the personalities that survive, but is there any survive as a, as a, as a, figurehead, a, a figurehead of where the society went during their term. Okay, Professor Stathis, um, let's just forget about the row with the, with the CNN correspondent, uh, but this press conference, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've all seen that. Uh, the, the clue in that, that press conference, 90-minute press conference, when he seemed to be willing to do business with Congress, he's presenting this new Mr. Nice Guy image. What do you read into that? He is famous uh, for being uh, a deal-maker. Uh, we haven't seen much of that in the last two years, but... Uh, uh, number one, he has no choice uh, at this point. Um, his worst nightmare has uh, <laughs> has come to fore. Uh, he has to wake up in the morning knowing that he has to deal with uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives. And uh, uh, it's not going to work by uh, bellicose uh, bellowing. Um, he is going to have to come down to earth uh, and uh, uh, to, to work uh, with the Democratic uh, House of Representatives. Mm. What do you think the effect of that will be, Christopher? Well, the first thing we have to remember is that the House of Representatives and the chairs, which they will then have of the important committees and subcommittees, they will be in a power in a powerful position of being able to subpoena information and also personalities in all the sort of attacks rightly or wrongly on the president and if that happens he can stand back and say deals are off but in the meantime mm-hmm. uh, he can actually say right you want a health deal and even if you bring up a sort of Obama type health deal he may be able to discuss it it may even get through because when it gets to the Senate of course he has absolute control but in the meantime watch the committees in the House of Representatives these are the people who in theory have the control of the speed at which the president now works. Mm. Professor Stathis, just, just before you go, before we finish this chat, um, I want to bring it back to leadership. Who do you think is the best leader or has been well, in history? I'm, <laughs> I'm a child of the early 60s. Um, when I was uh, uh, 13, uh, my idol was John F. Kennedy. Uh, now, uh, there were times when he did not translate um, his authority properly into getting things done. Uh, but um, his finest moment was the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and bring a, bringing us bring us bringing us all the world away from the uh, uh, the uh, abyss of the possibility of nuclear war. Mm-hmm. But Khrushchev on Russian side also backed down, and sometimes leadership takes a heck of a Indeed. lot of pressure to back down. All right. On that note, we'll leave it. Michael Stathis from the University of Southern Utah. Thank you for your time today.
Now, the historian and television presenter Dan Snow has made a TV documentary on what used to be shell shock, but now we call it PTSD. He told our producer, Gisela Waldron, that it was during the First World War that psychiatrists first started looking at the mental effects of the battlefield. Now, we know that before this, clearly old soldiers in the 19th century, 18th century, and long before, that we have anecdotal accounts of old soldiers suffering in their later years. But really, shell shock was the first time that this was noted by doctors and studied at, at, during, during the conflict itself. And then since that, in the last hundred years, we've been through a lot of uh, learning. We've been through ups and downs. We, the Second World War, they cracked down again. They said people showing um, signs of battle fatigue or, or battle shock were just suffering from low, low moral fiber or you know, lacking in moral fiber. And then, and then uh, you know, now we have a situation where the armed forces are constantly talking about mental health and very aware of it and, and you know, trying try to right the wrongs of previous generations. Were you shocked or surprised by what you found? I was very surprised by what I found. I mean, first of all, there's lots of interesting um, things in, in the documentary. Some, some people benefit from having experienced battle. Some people don't suffer from traumat- post-traumatic stress from, from the trauma they've witnessed at all. They, they go on and have a totally normal life. But some people do find it very difficult. And over the years, I've been surprised by how those people have been treated. In the First World War, the very extreme end, some were shot for things like cowardice and desertion because they couldn't stand to go forward. They couldn't stand the loud noises or whatever it might have been. Uh, and then more recently, I've met veterans who've received top-notch medical care. So we've, in 100 years, we've come a long way and we have seen a wide variety of responses. And often that depends on the doctor and the circumstances and, and just who, who sees you first and who your commanding officer is. You know, it's, it's very hard. It's not like having an arm blow off when everyone goes, That's, there's no arm there. A, men- a mental scar, a mental wound is much more difficult to diagnose and treat. War often leads to advances in medicine, and we've seen that even recently in Afghanistan. But what about mental health? Why haven't treatments for trauma developed as quickly? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, and it's hard. I've asked this of everyone I've met, and I'm going to some say that we have learned how to treat it a bit better. We've got talking therapies. We've got we've got drugs. We know things. We know that. Uh, you know, whether it's rest, whether it's proximity to green space, exercise, kids, family and kids can be important. But but everyone's different. And I think the brain is a more complicated thing than a limb, than a lower leg, than, you know, just, just repairing some scar, t- some tissue, some damaged tissue. So uh, you, you're unfortunately asking the wrong guy, but it is, it's, it's that that has made this such a fascinating documentary and makes it such a difficult subject to talk about. Because if we could flick a switch, you know, if you give everyone an injection, like in the First World War, you know, people were dying of um, prevent- what are now preventable diseases. We gave people injections, and that was that problem solved. Well, we, we, it doesn't look like we inoculate against PTSD, or, although some people are trying, and there's this thought that we might be able to prepare people and, 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 and give them some defences against becoming traumatised. Now, as part of the programme, you spoke to veterans of more recent conflicts about their PTSD. What was that like for you? Well, it's difficult for me because, uh, you know, I've made a, I mean, it's more difficult for them, I expect, but, uh, but it's tricky for me because I've made a lot of programs. And I, I have, from time to time, sounded quite enthusiastic about war. Like, you know, when I make a program about D-Day or make a program about the Gulf War. And, and actually, it was important to come face to face with young men and women whose experiences were not positive. And it's just been a real lesson to me to just get, you know, watch watch my tone, watch watch the way I approach these things. And these guys are younger than me now. You know, I still think I'm quite young, but I'm not. I'm in my late 30s. This guy's now in the late 20s, early 30s. He's done three tours of Afghanistan. I've met one or two of them who were, who were really suffering. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was, a, it was a, a fascinating and a sobering experience. And it was important because I think too often, whether I meet on my other pregnancy, you know, we meet the medal recipients and they go, oh, look, you got DFC, great. And he tells that he spins a dit and he, he says, 
how fantastic it was or she said how great it was. And actually now it's important to meet some of the other people who, who, who they don't push in front of the cameras that often. That was Dan Snow, and you can see the documentary World War One's Secret Shame Shell Shock at 9pm on Monday the 12th of November on BBC Two. Now, art installations, sculptures, poems, silences and poppy-wearing footballers are just some of the ways that Britain is commemorating the centenary of the armistice. But are we getting remembrance right? That was the question up for a discussion last night at the National Army Museum in London. Dr Glyn Prosser is Chief Historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and he chaired the event and joins us now. Hello, good to speak to you today. What prompted the museum to hold a discussion like this? Well, uh, we've been thinking a lot, of course, about the end of the centenary of the First World War. And 1918, 100 years ago, was uh, a real watershed moment in history. And I think 100 years on marks a real milestone in in how we remember that war. Of course, all of the the veterans, those who lived through that, that terrible conflict, have now passed on. And I think it's right to reflect on not only the lives of those who who served and who died in that war, but also the ways that we think about it. Uh, And so we invited uh, Dan Cruikshank, the uh, TV architectural art historian, uh, Emma Chambers from from the Tate, and Professor Shantanu Das, an expert in Indian culture and and memory of the war, to, to reflect on that question, are we getting remembrance right? And it was a really interesting and, and thought-provoking discussion. And what was their answer? Are we getting it right? Well, I think one of the, the most interesting things that came out of it was the thought that actually we need to uh, also remember the process of remembrance itself. Uh, on Sunday, of course, we'll be focused on the Cenotaph and on Westminster Abbey, those familiar symbols of, of commemoration, the unknown warrior, the march past the poppies, as you mentioned before, all of these things have become quite uh, important rituals for us. And we were reflecting on the, the importance of understanding where they came from. So not only reflecting on the war itself, but also the society left behind. You know, why did we choose to remember in the way that we do? And how can we make sure that we're remembering in the right way? And certainly, Shantani Das said some very interesting things about the importance of recognizing the diversity uh, of different people who took part in all kinds of different ways, from, from mothers and, and wives to conscientious subjectors and all kinds of different people who contributed mm. in their own way. Our defense analyst, Christopher Lee, is listening to this. Uh, Christopher, do you think we're getting remembrance right? Um, very difficult, isn't it? I, I, a personal view is that I don't. Um, I think uh, at the Cenotaph, for example, where the monarch uh, pays tribute to the dead and they are the her or his dead as well because the the forces uh, forces are with the monarch. And I think it's fine to leave it there, fine to leave it maybe at local church services or whatever where there is a, a, a monument outside. I think what the other things that we now see are the great extravaganzas I think the thing at the Tower of London, as I thought, the last display of puppets at the Tower of London was something you might have put into the X Factor. It, it sounds extreme when you say it like that. It Why is do you meant say to. That? It is, what? Why do you say that? Because I think it goes beyond what we're talking about and the idea of... Uh, I mean, it happened to know somebody was working on it and they saw it exactly as that. Dr Glyn Prosser, um, what happens after this, after the big centenary year is over? What happens next year? Well, this, I think, is the big question. And certainly for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, this job doesn't end. Uh, we're founded to perpetually commemorate all of those who lost their lives in the wars, uh, in the cemeteries and memorials, of course, all across the world. Um, but I think that there is 
an element that we, that we should reflect on what we're doing. I think if these things become empty rituals, you know, we say these words and we don't actually think about what they mean, then the whole meaning of remembrance is lost entirely. And I think it's right that we, that we are emotional and that we're moved by these things. But I think it's also important to understand the history behind these rituals and behind the wars that we're commemorating. And also you've been talking here about the First World War and what about the death of the Second World War, of Korea, of Iraq, of other places. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole point of remembrance uh, done right is that it has contemporary resonance. You know, these are not just old, dusty, here historical mm. events. They have a real relevance to our lives today. And I think, you know, in, in these times, it's all the more important to, to reflect on ourselves and our, on our own world uh, and to be emotionally aware, to be able to connect with people from, from a very different time faced with some of the challenges that we still face today. On that note, we'll leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr Glyn Prosser from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Uh, Christopher, um, obviously Sunday is the day that everyone looks at the Cenotaph and does remember. Um, I think it's important, the Cenotaph, uh, uh, in, in that point, you know the, when you get the uh, presenting of the colours by the Queen to a, a regiment, for example, some of the words she says privately as she, as, she, as she normally stoops down to hand over the colours is protect these colours because you protect our values. And I think that's what the Cenotaph is. I think a lot of the other has, uh, has turned into, has become such a huge event. It is it? difficult, though, isn't it, to think how you keep it relevant and how you do bring it up to date. Uh, is there a way should that you, we... Should you, should you bring it up to date? I mean, perhaps we have the cenotaph and that's it. Perhaps that is the single service. There are a lot of other things that we've looked at in great depth that now have a, a solitary reminder and sometimes they are far more solemn. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP in all the usual podcast places. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Help for impossible.